Hey all, welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema and television. I'm Eileen Jones. I'm Dolores McElroy. And today we are talking about representations of older women in film, this time specifically about um, older women on the road. We're calling this Old Broads Hit the Road. (laughs) (laughs) Or they're otherwise on the move in journeys of transformation. (laughs) Um, you know, and I have to note, this is turning out to be quite a series, not an intended one. It's just happening. Um, a series of works that one or both of us has been engaged in for quite a while. Long ago, we did a film suck episode in appreciation of the great old broads of cinema, as we called it. Um, and a month ago, I was asked to write a Jacobin article for the upcoming print issue on the topic of aging, specifically, um, in my case, uh, what I was going to write about is how aging, um, relates to women in film. And I wrote about the formidable matriarch characters of classic um, Hollywood cinema. And that is just, yeah, will be the upcoming one. I'm not sure of exactly when it's coming out, but soon. Um, You know, then my last Film Suck essay was just a kind of continuation. It was a tribute to the splendid character actor Thelma Ritter, who throughout her career tended to represent the the tough, shrewd, middle-aged, working-class woman. Um, a figure that you don't really typically see anymore. I mean, there's a lot of characters we don't see anymore. We don't tend to make films. We don't mass produce them the way they used to. But it seems to me that the formidable matriarch and the the tough working class woman are, I miss them and they're, I don't see much of them. I just have to note it. Um, Especially because it's now considered quite a good, good era for older women in film, which I myself tend to dispute, but maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? (laughs) I think you're more confident about it than I am, or you, mm-hmm. you at least noted with more hopefully than I do. And you yeah. wrote a uh, conference paper, right? For I don't, yeah. I don't know for what year that we're going to be relying on for uh, your last, main argument about about three different works. Yeah, last March for SCMS, which is yeah, the Society for, for Media um, and Cinema Studies. Yeah, yeah, Society for Media and Cinema Studies, which is the big one in the academic world of uh, film and media. Um, okay, so let's plunge in because we've got lots to say. Um, so now, you know, let's take uh, these old broads on the road. Dolores, um, <laughs> let's start with your argument just because you already did a conference paper, which means it is painstakingly worked out. Okay. And I will interject. Um, you know, uh, Dolores will introduce her, the three, you know, uh, works, two were films, one's a series, a TV series. And I'm dealing with a film called Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, um, which came out last year. And I'll be interjecting. Um, throughout okay carry cool. on okay well so in my paper um and it's being developed into an article so don't steal these ideas you guys not you but like our listening public i'll come for you um because i know i know that it's your goal to <laughs> totally write something on old broads and getting it on um but my my, my paper was about uh w- women in their over 60 on the road, um, having sex mm-hmm. <laughs> in films and movies. I'm always, I mean, I'm interested in sexuality studies in general, def- uh, obviously in women's sexuality. And um, there is kind of an interesting moment that's happening right now. Um, in fact, in 2019, the New York Times proclaimed it a, ro- a watershed year for films about older women, which mm-hmm. it was in many ways, meaning that they're simply on screen. Doesn't mean that all these movies are great. And Eileen's written about some of the... Um, 
you know, less inspiring <laughs> representations of older <laughs> women. But some of the films uh, that came out around that time were like, um, so aside from 2019, the trend is continued with Nomadland, The Lost Daughter with Olivia Coleman. Good luck to you, Leah Grand with Emma Thompson, which Eileen and I both detested. Um, <laughs> 80 for Brady with, um, you know, Jane Fonda and everyone else. Um, and and not to mention movies. the book clubs. Yeah. 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 Very popular. Yeah. Super popular, all of which follow women over 60. So that's exciting. Um, Eileen has taken on some of the stereotypes in films like 80 for Brady, which is they're worth taking on. (laughs) Things like, um, you know, like playing for comedy, the idea that older women wouldn't get really high (laughs) or like win a hot sauce eating contest. Um, Absolutely. You know, Um, what I was finding kind of interesting, which was that for the first time, Um, Well, I don't know if it's for the first time, but I saw a trend of women over 60 leaving economically depressed places that promised them little and hitting the road, not just for a trip and then coming home, um, because even if women have transformative experiences, you know, elsewhere, oftentimes as in most films about and for women, um, they always end up back home. As Lauren Berlant says um, in her work, The Female Complaint, the signs of women's culture always say, go home. (laughs) But I saw a couple of films and shows where this wasn't the case, and the women seemed almost permanently on the road. And they were older, and having sexual adventures was also like an important part of this being on the road. And I was interested in the way that it kind of spoke to... um, film theory about the way that, at least on screen, the modern city, like the industrial city of modernity, the great, you know, factory era cities um, of the West that appear on screen, think like Busby Berkeley movies, you know, 42nd Street. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was taken by this line from Marianne Doan, um, who wrote, the architecture of the modern city is indissociable from the narrativization of female sexuality. And I thought this was interesting that in the mid-20th century, especially the early and mid-20th century, um, the the painted face of the new woman uh, was very much linked to the industrial cityscape. Mm-hmm. But it oh, seems wow. like... Think of the famous cover for Great Gatsby. Exactly. The, exactly. The wonderfully painted woman's flapper's face looks like Louise Brooks, you know, abstracted over a cityscape. Wow. That's good. Totally, totally. Yeah. And I mean, even thinking of like a movie like 42nd Street, where mm. um, chorus girls turn around and literally change into the New York skyline, you know, uh, like yeah. uh, there are many images like this. And I think um, it don't don't sort of like crystallizes this idea, but it's an idea that's been used by scholars like Miriam Hansen. Um, there's been like a lot of writing, uh, you know, about this phenomenon. Mm. Um, and so my question was kind of like, OK, well, these women have aged and the industrial city has declined and it seemed like um there there are like three periods being addressed implicitly by these contemporary stories of older women going out on the road the first is that um home um is represented by like a more traditional um agricultural hearth and the industrial cityscape of the 20th century seems like a departure from that. And that that's risky for for women and for culture in general to have these sort of like newly empowered, but also sort of dubious 
painted ladies mm-hmm. <laughs> um, stand for the new city. And the new city represents uh, change and also the changing roles of women. And there's a lot of fear around those roles, which mm-hmm. is when you get the figure like a figure like a femme fatale luring mm-hmm. men to their doom in the city with her painted face as mm-hmm. the city itself lures poor country boys to, to their doom. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's like a third phase, which is um, this phase of post-industrial decline. And it seems like women, again, are sort of the, I don't know if you want to call them the canary in the coal mine or what, but um, with these narratives of older women are responding to this industrial decline. And in a way, it's kind of freeing for women. Um, So they're freed from the old domestic, uh, you know, agrarian (laughs) hearth and home thing. Um, But they also seem to be slowly freeing themselves from the femme fatale of the uh, factory, you know, the industrial city. And now they're older. And throughout human history, old women didn't really have any, certainly older women's sexuality is not a thing that's addressed, really imagined, um, even like dealt with because it's, um, it has zero purpose in patriarchal logic where women's sexuality is completely tied to their ability to reproduce. Um, so you get past your reproductive years, women's sexuality is unimaginable, but it's kind of interesting in like post modernity, these women in their sixties and seventies are setting off from these like crumbling cities that are doing them no favors. And they're like getting it on, on the road. And Um, I'm interested in it because it seems to be a way to like deal with changing notions of the future Um, in a more traditional logic, normative sexuality, usually, which is usually usually always um, heterosexual and um, centered on like reproduction, Um, you know sexuality traditionally is for the purpose of reproducing. Uh, so mm-hmm. once it, what, you know, once children are no longer necessarily the aim, um, the, I guess the best, you know, the best term to talk about sex outside of that is queer because, uh, ma- and many theorists have talked about this from like Lauren Berlant to, you know, Michael Warner, but basically, you know, things that don't serve that sp- explicit aim are mm-hmm. sort of other. Um, and there, that's also like quite freeing. And it, it forces us to rethink um, ideas of how, how to live in general, because, you know, a more traditional way of living is for the future, which is implicitly for the children. Um, so what does it mean when we have to like, you know, re-envision how to live, how to be, and also like what sex can mean. And for these women, it's really interesting. So I'm, I'm looking at three works. The first is a film called El San Va. It's a French movie called On My Way, starring Catherine Deneuve from 2013. Um, that's perhaps the most conservative of the bunch. And then there's uh, a Netflix movie uh, uh, called Juanita, starring Alfre Woodward, um, about a black woman who is a nurse in Baltimore and leaves her family and her her you know grown kids um, and her shitty job and and heads west on a Greyhound bus and falls in love with this Native American guy, but uh, in many ways keeps going. <laughs> and then the third. Um, show that we're not going to spend a lot of time on because we've talked about it is Hacks, where uh, 
Jean Smart as Deborah Vance. She's playing a comedian and she leaves her Las Vegas residency. Um, mm-hmm. She's kind of aged out of it. She gets kicked out for like a younger act mm-hmm. and um, is putting together a new show on the road. And her sexual encounter helps her get her groove back, but not in terms of romance, in terms of her art. She figures out the click for her show when she sleeps with this younger guy who does not return as a character. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it's like there's all this interesting stuff about how like what what sex can mean for people outside of just, you know, um, like in creating a, a linear family line. And I'm talking a lot. Where do I go from now? Should I start with El Sanva? <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, maybe just just yeah. Some of the the key ways it's elucidating, it's representing what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I I'm also like I'm following uh, Damon's Damon Young's book, Making Sex Public, um, and in some ways, in specifically in the like um, on screen. My, where can women have sex? <laughs> where can women over sixty have sex? That's kind of, that was like my question, and it became a question because I I saw some uh, I saw a pattern. Um, so I, I and I mean like geographically or architecturally, <laughs> and, and it's because you know like architecture was kind of the like spark for this idea, right? Like what happens when the city crumbles? Mm-hmm. Are these ladies going out on the road and having sex in fields? Are they having sex in their vans? Like what's mm-hmm. going on? And um, I it, it turns out the pattern seems to be that women have sex in these like ch- these spaces that are they're usually buildings, but they're buildings that are like temporary. They're like oftentimes close to some big stable, what we would think of as like an old style home, but not exactly it. Um, or they're a place where lots of people are going in and out. So I'll go quickly through this. But in El Sanva, the French movie with Deneuve, um, Deneuve ends up at an, a chateau. Uh, couldn't get more traditional than that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and she ends up with this guy who owns the chateau and is the mayor of the town. No bigger wow. patriarch <laughs> than that guy, right? Um, <laughs> um, so this is the most conservative of the examples. But what's kind of interesting is that instead of ha- waking up in the chateau together, at the end of the movie, she gets together with this guy, age appropriate, he's her age. And um, they they make love in this little trailer on the grounds of the chateau. Mm-hmm. And so it's this like temporary structure in proximity to the old ancestral home, but not exactly it. The same thing happens in Juanita. The first time Juanita gets together with her uh, boyfriend, the Native American guy, it's in this like complex, she walks by these homes, like old style, you know, like uh, wooden or brick houses Mm -hmm. that look like a people have raised a family there. They're like uh, two-story homes, nice and solid. And those homes are in ruins. Mm -hmm. And um, her boyfriend has a kind of like a trailer. Again, a temporary structure in close proximity to like the old style home, but not it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Deborah Vance, our comedian, um, when she hooks up with this younger guy, this 40-year-old on the road in Nashville, um, or sorry, Memphis, uh, he lives like a college student. And he's got these roommates who like eat cereal and play video games. And um, even though it is technically, it you know, it looks like a building, like a stable building. It's not like a a trailer or anything. Um, It's still kind of a transient space because none of these guys are living there forever. There are lots of people in and out. Um, So I thought that was kind of interesting. Like the the women 
with a possible exception of Deneuve, who's awfully like too close for comfort to that damn chateau. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's something about like, even though they're hooking up with men, they're not, quote, going home, um, mm-hmm. as often happens. And it happens all the time in romantic comedies. Think of all those, like, romantic comedies with older people like Diane Keaton or Meryl Streep. They always end up making a home together again at the end and reproducing, a, you know, like a, a conventional family structure, even if the people are older, you know? Mm-hmm. This is not happening in these films about women who set out on the road. And the other thing is, like, at the end of the films, they don't necessarily none of them go back. None of them go back home. None of them necessarily make a new stable home. It's instead it's implied they're going to keep traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought this was so interesting because I mean, of, of course there are so many people with this status now today. I mean, mm-hmm. so many people are, uh, uh, you know, in, in some sort of exile, economic, mm-hmm. environmental, and, they people have to there it's a huge time of migration because mm-hmm. of all of these forces that are upsetting um any kind of imagined <laughs> or former stability um so I, I just feel like these is there something hopeful in these women like it, it is it is optimistic each time in each of these works um and it does not necessarily lead them to greater stability Mm-hmm. It leads them to some sort of confidence. It leads them to joy. Um, but it's a like it's a way of being in the world, experiencing joy, feeling alive without necessarily counting on stability. And for women, this can be quite freeing because, quote, stability for millennia is another way of tying women, shackling them to the home, <laughs> you know? Right. So, um I'm excited and I I think it has to be older women in a way who like lead this because they are so obviously free of the pressures to reproduce, Mm -hmm. which is like what most women, most women's lives, even if you are so far out of the game, like even if you have since you were young known, I do not want children, even if you are queer, um, people are still going to it doesn't matter what you say about your life. People yeah. are still going to tell the story of your life that it is a tragedy if you did not have kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> so and, and You're right. You could never ha- have the same impact with young women because even if they don't wind up in a home, you're just thinking, well, they're young. They're going to wind you're up. You're going to get it someday. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's So I don't know. It's like these women are free of that. You know, mm-hmm. and um, let's see, do they I guess they do all have kids. So maybe that's one way that the the mm-hmm. films are, you know, aren't aren't yet that radical. But <laughs> but um, it, but, but it's, ex- it's a move that you're right. That is not a familiar one. That's not mm-hmm. familiar. Yeah. yeah. No. And it's exciting. And it's I, I don't know. I just feel like it's a way to be in the world without like um, making meaning. Uh, you know, from uh, in the standard ways and building optimism in a way that like can actually kind of work for for the the many, you know, for the throngs of people who won't have stabil- stability mm-hmm. um, in our very like chaotic future. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> it's, I don't know. I, well, I, I was when we, when we did our episode on Nomadland, which is is, you know, only sort of adjacent to this in that. Yeah, there's no. There's a there's a man who's interested in her, but she's not really. I don't know. 
I think they dance together. I don't think they do. They do anything more. I don't no, think they, they do. don't. And I, I looked. Yeah, a, yeah, <laughs> I was like, do I they get together? Remember, but yeah, it's not. And that her drive is very open road from the beginning. It seems like she mm-hmm. always wants. You know, she always wanted, which in some ways undercuts the whole nomadland phenomena. What it's actually based on is an account of people being forced. She's forced too, being forced onto the road. Who like are not loving it. <laughs> they just yeah. they, they they might find a way. Um, to feel more free, but it's there's a lot about that isn't freeing. But at any rate, that's the whole emphasis, and and she does keep going, but that becomes the goal. So that's that's related in that way. Yes, and that we haven't we haven't seen that, and that it it's so much based on what's happening right now. There there is a nomadland um, phenomena that's huge. Absolutely, and I, again, I think it's not entirely tragic. Like I, I do think Nomadland, it you know, does advance some critiques. We've said, you yeah. know, in our yeah, in our thinking about it, like not enough. You know, it's very easy. It's like you know, easy but on it Amazon. Does the offers of home. She gets two offers. One from yep. her sister and one from the man who winds up in this unbelievably idyllic situation. <laughs> Remember when he's going to, he's on so much land that there's a guest house or something that she can live in? Yes, exactly. It's just like, oh my God, they deliberately designed a paradise where she could just say, yep, mm-hmm. and she rejects it. So that's how much the commitment in the film is to her continuing on the road. Yeah. And again, for Fern, there's a lot of optimism in that choice. It is her choice. She loves the people she meets. She loves the places she travels. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, and this is not to dismiss. No one's dismissing the pain of exile or of being, you know, any kind of refugee. Um, But it is important to have optimism. It is important to, like, remember, like, you're not alive. You're not dead. You're alive. (laughs) Exactly, and, and it's very much presented that way through the the woman she meets who's dying of cancer. Who's basically yes. actually was played by a character who actually was the woman who actually was dying of cancer, <sighs> and she absolutely loves her whole life. And is <laughs> it's it's that is kind of the most amazing affirmation in the film of you know one thing you could say about the life of exile, especially, and it's important that it be I think about older women, um, especially is especially a, a dramatic example of this. It's because, it, sure, it's going to hurt in places, but it's going to be different places than the way it's always hurt you before. Mm. So to the extent that there's pain, at least it's not going to be your endless deadening pain that you've had all your life of feeling <laughs> constricted and living by choices that weren't yours and yes. stuck when you want to move and, and those kind of things. Yes. Which No Man Land makes very clear. Yeah. Yeah, it's choice. It's you're right. That's the magic of these films. Mm. They're all conscious decisions, every yeah. single bit of them. And these women are they're tired with what quote home is offering them, um, and you know, oftentimes uh, homes failures are the failures of the economic system where they live. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's their it's their choice to go out on the road. It's their choice to sleep with whom they please, mm-hmm. um, and that you know, there's lots of power in, and excitement in that. Uh, of course, because it's just the perfect way to take a, a kind of figurative, a feeling that your horizons are constricted and you want them to open up. And so you literally put them in a landscape where they literally open up. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it just has an inherent <laughs> um, built in drama that's very nice. Very nice. Yes. It would be nice to have like nine million of these road movies. I love road movies anyway. Um, yes. But. This version would be really exciting to see continue. And there's one element that you haven't talked about that that I really want to get into, just because it segues nicely into um, Mrs. Harris, which mm-hmm. has some differences in, in in a number of ways. It doesn't fit perfectly into what you're talking about. It's a little bit of a tangent. 
mm-hmm. where you talk about the place of fantasy in these transformative experiences. Yeah. Um, what did I say about that, Eileen? Well, you were talking about <laughs> character winds up in a place called Paper Moon. Paper oh, yeah. Moon, it's all about, you know, something that's, that's fake or yeah. imagined. De- definitely. Okay, so in, in Juanita... Juanita, um yeah. yeah Juanita's uh, Juanita's like lovely it's you know it's it would be a lifetime movie if lifetime were still popular um <laughs> and that's the you know that's those are sort of the production values that's the tone mm. and I'm a big fan of lifetime movies so that's mm. that's definitely like a, a place um so um Juanita is um uh, uh takes place in this town called Paper Moon mm-hmm. um which is the film you know showing us uh like very consciously that um, for Juanita, the West, <laughs> the Rocky Mountain West, um, functions uh, as a fantasy space, as it does for many Americans, mm-hmm. um, as a place to reinvent oneself, a place of possibility where one can fashion a future for, mm-hmm. free from one's past. And it's important. You could roll your eyes at that and, and name the, the ideological problems with that. But mm-hmm. I think it's really important in Juanita in particular. Um, this is a sp- distinctly like black American fantasy uh, mm-hmm. of the West. Mm-hmm. And for for Juanita, it's a place in America where whiteness may not always be the majority. Mm-hmm. So like Paper Moon is a mostly Native American place mm-hmm. um, it, within the film. There are other kinds of people there, but, you know, it's a place where like there there isn't necessarily like like default, like white hegemony. Right. Um, and and that's important. Like it's important that that fantasy can exist um, because you first have to imagine something before you can build it. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and this fantasy heals Juanita. Um, and she, she, she gets literally healed there. Um, she, she does fall in love with a native American guy and she works at his restaurant and, um, she goes to a powwow um, and people uh, work with her and do some, you know, healing work. They do some blessings and stuff um, in a structure at the powwow. Um, and that that is it's linked to the romance, but it's more like this fantasy place um, gives her a new idea of herself and and the ability to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, and, yeah. and to, to sort of embrace the idea of. Uh, the necessary step of fantasy in women seems to be an interesting move because in women, it's so often aligned with a kind of um, a kind of almost weakness of character. Like women, women are essentially just fantasists. Women, like the whole arguments in film theory about how women just fall into (laughs) the movies with with no, no, no barrier of the self, just fall into film fantasy. Mm hmm. Whereas men are protected by their whole psychological structure that, <laughs> that, that prevents this, whereas women have nothing. They just like blah. Right. Dive um, into the screen. It's Purple Rose of Cairo. Yeah, Purple Rose of Cairo. Exactly. Yeah. So to recover, um, to recover an approving version of fantasy for women seems interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely, and, and and vital. So let's let's talk about how Mrs. Harris goes to Paris, recovers the yeah. function of fantasy for women. Well, this this film was last, you know opened last year. It's directed by um, someone named Anthony Fabian, who's got a very short filmography. So I'd never heard heard of him. Mm-hmm. And it's based on a nineteen what is it fifty? I don't know. I've already forgotten fifty. I think it's fifty six book 
um, um, by Paul Jericho, who's a very successful writer who also wrote the stuff that became the movie Lily. He wrote he wrote the source material for Poseidon Adventure. Whoa! <laughs> I know, <laughs> wild, uh, wild uh, uh, list of things that he wrote. But at any rate, you know, especially if we, we go back to fantasy, the character of Mrs. Harris, she's a charwoman or cleaning woman in, um, who works in London. And she she's very much circumscribed by her her role in life, not only because there's a certain level of obvious um, economic privation that keeps her in her place. She's pretty much never gone anywhere. Um, but she also has a very her uh, compensatory active uh, fantasy life. And the, the film sort of sets up one fantasy was kind of a dead end fantasy the main one of her life, which is that her husband, who who was actually killed in the war in 1944, is still living as long as she doesn't open this box that is delivered to her. That has actually got his his last effects, which is just one ring he wore, and the telegram saying where and how he died. Mm-hmm. As long as she does that kind of Schrodinger's cat, as long as she doesn't open the box, yeah. he's, he's as alive as he is dead. So she carries this around for, I don't know, I think it's, it's supposed to be 57. So she's carrying it around for you know 13 years. 12 years, yeah. <laughs> not opening um, this box. Um, and the, 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 among the first dramatic things that happens, might be the first dramatic thing, is her friend Vi, who's also a charwoman, persuades her to open the box. And so she gets the final notice of what was, should have been very obvious <laughs> it mm-hmm. was really obvious but she couldn't let go of this particular fantasy that she was a person waiting for her husband to come home a hero from the war and she has an interesting response to that which is she, very teary-eyed she says well footloose and fancy free mm-hmm. as if the some instinct automatically goes even in her anguish to i'm now free and I can be on the move. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the it's a way of signaling that that's going to be the end of the deadening fantasy, and she's now open for the kind of fantasy that that Dolores is talking about, where you can take that and make something from it. It's not a dead end. Mm-hmm. So you know, then you there's the another difference of Mrs. Harris. She's she's going to have a couple of possible romances built into what happens next. But all of them are going to be curtailed or highly ambiguous or not work out or whatever. And none of them are going to be the primary romance. Her primary romance is the first time she sees a, a Christian Dior <laughs> dress. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly shot to be the romantic peak of you know, the film is her, her relationship with the first dress and then the dress she has made. All the dresses and then the dress she has made. Mm-hmm. So she's going to wind up, you know, obviously with the impossible desire after she goes, she's at a, cl- a wealthy client. Her name's Lady Dent. She's kind of presented as an awful woman in the in the movie, never paying her, but spending wild amounts of money on everything else. And she's just an awful, horrible woman. Um, but at any rate, she sees this this dress hanging in the wardrobe and is immediately uh, so enraptured that you get the classic, you know, Hitchcock invented. <laughs> I forget what you call it, Dolly Zoom. Mm. Only the one that brings her forward toward yeah. the dress as you see the background recede, as the whole wor- rest of the world goes away, and it's just her and the dress in a dream together. And of course, immediately her hands go out, and you see that her hands are the hands of a woman who's pushing 60, and they go to the the amazing dress, which they, they designed very beautiful. Jenny Bevan is is doing is recreating actual Christian Dior dresses. 
and she she's chosen very wisely. It's one of those very richly um, stiff uh, a dress that could seem to stand alone. Right. Um, it's so rich without even what you call them appliques and, you know, sh- shine and shimmer and life. It's, it's actually got, you know, a whole, the whole bodice is floral and it all would stand out from the body and in incredible, um, opulence. And so mm-hmm. she just has to reach out like a smitten lover for this dress. And then of course she's interrupted by Lady Dent. And from then on, she is never free of the idea that she has to go to Paris and get a dress like that for herself, which is just virtually impossible. She's also a fantasist in that she believes tremendously in luck and in signs uh, in the universe. And once her husband is dead, she's convinced he's, he's on the other side working on her behalf, mm-hmm. along with the gods of chance. So, you know, she's going to wind up winning a football pool and various things are going to have to happen. Plus, she's going to have to scrimp and save. You know, the book makes it clear she mainly has to scrimp and save other than the football pool for three years before she can go and get. They do, of course, a montage of, you know, how it's going to what it's going to take to get her on this trip. So it's certainly not a road trip. She's flying to Paris. But the movie does something interesting that the book doesn't do, which is it actually it actually has her flight be just the first leg of the journey. Because she's only got exactly enough money to buy the dress, and she's heard from Lady Dent how much it will cost, mm-hmm. and fly to Paris and come back, she thinks virtually in the same day. Fly, get there in the morning, come back in the evening. She doesn't know how they're going to have to build the dress on her, and she's going to have to stay there for at least a week. Mm-hmm. So she has no place to stay or anything, and she has to walk from the airport to Paris. So they're walking from the airport to Paris, and it's shown as being very far, is the next leg of her journey. And then she winds up. It's not clear if she's in a bus station or a train station where she's going to spend the rest of the night when she gets to Paris with basically what looks to be alcoholic homeless men. Um, mm-hmm. We're passing a wine <laughs> around what we would call colloquially winos. <laughs> they're very friendly and very gallant. And the first instance of romance she encounters is the, the, the main one the, of the three who, who has the most lines and the most active in a relationship to her. seems to like her immediately is this man who offers her a drink of wine and she takes it and he offers to walk her to the, in the morning to um, the house of Dior. And once he gets her there in the morning, he says certain crucial things. There's a garbage strike in Paris. This is not in the book Mm -hmm. that has taken every romantic aspect of Paris. And now is going to be, you're going to be reminded of it always. If you have any kind of, haptic relationship to cinema you're clearly supposed to be constantly reminded by the sight of mounds of garbage that the whole place reeks smells <laughs> to high heaven even if it looks the rest of it looks lovely still and romantic it, but he he characterizes how we're supposed to relate to this piles of garbage and the smell by saying it smells like me but he he says it lightheartedly and smiling and seems happy and he's also the man who says in France, the worker is king. First, he tells her, you are a noble woman. Mm-hmm. And then he says, in France, the worker is king. Mm-hmm. And this gives her a kind of extra courage to get through the door, the forbidding doors of the House of Dior, <laughs> um, to, re- to begin a process of rethinking her relationship to her, you know, role as a working class person, a laborer, a lower class person in life, and to start thinking of herself in terms of a kind of, I don't know, another kind of, of royalty, another kind of vastly important person, the most important people in the society. This is, this is how to, you know it's not an American film. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and it's so key that it's got to be. She has to leave England, which it's famously 
rigid class stratification. She's mm-hmm. got to go to a country with a revolutionary history mm-hmm. where people will hit the street and strike <laughs> as soon as you threaten any, any of their yeah. workers' rights, which is still <laughs> much more true there than it is now, but then most places are, but it varies very much true in France. Yeah. So anyway, there's a whole level of, of meaning making that starts taking place that's crucial to the workings of the whole film that are going to carry through to the other romance. A marquise becomes kind of um, attracted to her and she thinks it's really to her and she starts thinking of herself again I think by elevating her sense of herself as a working woman. Um, she starts able, being able to enter into the idea of r- romance with this man and then it's revealed crushingly that he reminds her of the charwoman who worked at a, the British school where he was sent as a boy, like Eaton, one presumes, something like that, mm-hmm. who cheered him up and comforted him. And they called her Mrs. Mops. So she was completely identified with her role as, <laughs> as the charwoman, um, the nice charwoman. And so mm-hmm. that's how he thinks of her. And as soon as he says this, you see her face just fall. Leslie Manville giving a brilliant performance. She always does. Mm-hmm. and. That's it. That's it. She gets up and leaves immediately and realizing that she has been shoved back into this role in this this condescending and uncomplicated way. So that's going to be so much built into this experience of France, which is all designed around her love affair with the Christian Dior dress. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then, of course, she's going to have the dress built. She has to stay there a long time. You know, there's, you're going to find out there are problems with the House of Dior and whether they can continue. Because why? Well, because they, they have such demanding clients. It's so expensive to outfit them. They don't pay until, they, uh, until it's on delivery. And often they don't pay even that. <laughs> so mm-hmm. House of Dior is tottering, you find out. And there's going to have to be a whole rethinking and remodeling, shall we say. <laughs> the house of Dior works in order for it to be able to continue, and and uh, Mrs. Harris is going to be key to that by leading by leading a kind of mini strike within the house of Dior, and helping the the accountant to to tell them how they can reconfigure this this place to be more democratic and to have a line of products that appeal to women who can't afford um, the most expensive haute couture dresses. Mm-hmm. So all, there's all is, in other words, there's so many complex factors built into this that even though you can kind of recognize a formula that's, again, tangential to the one um, Laura's been talking about, there's that formula that's in romantic films. It's, it can be romantic comedy. It can be romantic drama mm-hmm. um, from anything from Now Voyager to How Stella Got Her Groove Back, where the woman who's getting to a certain age, it can be 35, it can be 40, <laughs> it can be Stella, it can be older, it can be whatever. Uh, but it has to be an age where a certain awareness of the aging process is is putting their entire sexual viability into question. Mm-hmm. And they are going to take a transformative journey, usually to some exotic and or you know, a glamorous place at any rate. And there they're going to have a romance. Um, and then it's going to be a transformative romance. They both experiences. And then they're going to, of course, go home. But that's absolutely built in. They have to go home to confront their old lives, to confront the restrictions on their whole lives, and mm-hmm. see if they can triumph over them with this kind of newly hard-won confidence and expanded sense of self. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it pretty well always ends in triumph, okay? M- Mrs. Harris is going to have a sort of rough outline of that, and it's not going to work like that. None of the conventional romances are really going to be fulfilled 
there's a working class guy who's a who's a, a bookie mm-hmm. played by Jason Isaacs. He's going to be back there. He will dance with her when she's wearing her her um, Christian Dior dress at the Legion. I think it's the the Legion Hall dance. Some yeah. you know, kind of kind of you know very ordinary working class place that she wears her splendid dress, makes a splendid entrance. He is now going to suddenly see her with new eyes. All of that's going to happen, but it's a it's a romantic moment and a dance. But there's no sense you're going to be like, oh, those two are going to get together and settle. You know, it has mm-hmm. none of that finality whatsoever. It's left open how Mrs. Harris is going to negotiate the rest of her life. It's hard to believe she can she can get out of the working class role she is in as a charwoman, but one certainly feels she's going to have a very expanded sense of herself that goes along with continuing to to work that job. Mm-hmm. Whether she other people can also, beyond that immediate circle of her friend Violet, uh, um, the bookie, Archie, whether anyone else can have that. Because, of course, everywhere she goes, she tends to encounter among her clients exactly the same tendency to put her back in her charwoman role. Mm-hmm. And that's when she says to one of them, I'm having an existential crisis. And he says, <laughs> jovially yet dismissively, well, of course, you just came back from a trip to France. So naturally, yeah. <laughs> now you have to, it was the 50s after all. You were going to have to have, automatically have the cliched um, uh, uh, existential crisis um, associated with Jean-Paul Sartre and, and yeah, uh, the other existentialists. Um, so again, all those attempts to put people back into a role, into some sort of essential box um is part of you know i'm reading up on i've never read sartre at any length in my life but i've gotten interested because he's quoted so frequently in the film there's two characters a model the model and the accountant who are trying to break out of their roles as just being the model and the accountant mm-hmm. and they're pretty much quoting they, their whole courtship is quoting jean-paul sartre back and forth to each other from being in nothingness that they're both reading um and one of his main claims is 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 about how to escape the role that you're forced into in a fundamentally material world. You're going to be forced into this part, and you it's it's vitally important that you not accept that as the as the finite the limit of yourself, mm-hmm. exacting in what he calls bad faith. Um, so there's going to be constant bad faith acting throughout the film, not only by the people who look at the uh, people as only their roles and the people in the roles who have, uh, who are discovering how hard it is to think of yourself in any other way. Um, So that's going to run through the whole film. So it, it's so much richer. It's even so much richer than the book. I'm only halfway through it, but I'm like going, wow, (laughs) whoever was working on these films and there's a long list of writers. Damn. One existentialist who knows Sartre. That's for sure. Um, but there's so much more richness and complexity, and it seems especially important what they're doing with the dress. I'm not sure yet if they're if they're going to ultimately do this with the dress. Mm-hmm. But the the dress being the main romantic relationship in the film with with uh, Mrs. Harris yes. is so crucial, and it's related also to her relationship to herself as a laborer and to labor the la- the, the labor that she's seeing around her, which is this le- level of highly brilliant creative labor that gives life to the dress and they're literally building the dress on her own body mm-hmm. and there are these ecstatic scenes of her turning um and to make and the dress flowing around her that are about as close to erotica as you're going to get <laughs> the dress mm-hmm. scenes are the erotica of the film mm-hmm. 
Um, so, so, so it's those two things together that are that are going to build toward the ultimate meaning of the film, which is going to, as you pointed out before we started talking um, officially before we were recording, mm-hmm. you said something like, "What was it that that the, the issues with the house of that the house of Dior is going to wind up basically united with Mrs. Harris?" Which yeah, is that, so strange. What you think of as this elitist, um, upper class, you know, entity. Mm-hmm. Somehow it's all going to collapse together and they're all going to be united as equals, as one, with the same ideas, the same artistic bent, the same respect for labor. She's also a dedicated seamstress and they recognize this in her, that in every way she is like, like they are in the House of Dior. And so all of this is going to come together through a successful strike and a reimagining of the house of New York. It's incredible. It's something you never see. And I mean, what you made clear, Eileen, and you're talking about it, uh, and what the film makes clear is that the House of Dior is not one lone genius. It's not Christian Dior. Right. It's all of these uh, mostly women and a mm-hmm. handful of um, men yeah. who uh, are highly skilled um, workers, mm-hmm. seamstresses, you know, um, whatever. Um, so the, and that, that's like the film really brings that out. Dior is the fleet of women behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And there, and what is so amazing is like the film affirms the importance once again of fantasy, uh, encapsulated in this dress. The dress is five hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. That's you know more than well four hundred thirty, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know more than this. You know I'm sure that's like half a many months' wages for this woman. And instead of that being depicted as like crazy, it's necessary. Mm-hmm. It's necessary to take this huge risk and invest in this amazing. Um, uh, dream, you know. Yes, and it's debated everywhere because you know for for a long time with yet there's an a woman who's been posited as an antagonist. Isabelle Huppert is playing her. She's the di- directrice. She manages basically everything. She runs really the House of Dior. <laughs> yeah, and is the go between between um um you know the great Dior and everyone else. Who, who turns out it's all great. They're all great. They all have to be great. They're all rising to an incredible standard all the time. Yeah, but she opposes. Of course, she's arguing their whole reputation is built on exclusivity, and she is the one who's very much opposed um, to Mrs. Harris even being able to watch. You know, one of the one of the showings of the dresses. She's even trying to get her out from the beginning. Um, but in the end, Mrs. Harris is going to argue to her when she loses the battle of exclusivity, and it seems like she's going to. She believes she's going to have to lead the House of Dior. It's Mrs. Harris who brings her back by saying. Who's running this house? You know it's you. <laughs> yep. Christian Dior can't, can't, he won't be able to manage this, especially with this transfer we're going to do. So you have to be the one to come back because you're vital to the whole role. And they also do an interesting thing, rather a shocking thing. At first, I wasn't sure I could really take it in. You see how much of a working class woman this woman is. She's so elegantly dressed and has such, you know, perfect diction and perfect presentation when she's at work that when you see her in her home it looks surprisingly plain oh Um, yeah that was great i was it's very shocking it makes you completely reconfigure you're supposed to clearly completely Mm -hmm. rethink this woman out of her beautiful black signature black with pearls Mm -hmm. you know suddenly you're like wow and her hair kind of messily pulled back and she's taking care of a husband another husband who's come back in her case came back but is you know, horribly, um, apparently wounded in some way. 
we don't even show him he's in the other room and he requires constant care that she either has to pay for or attend to herself so there's she has something in common with um 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 mrs harris that there's a kind of post-war grimness that infuses certainly the the london stuff um the english stuff all all these references even by rich people to how we all have to uh, retrench because mm-hmm. of the way things are ever since the war, this constant referral to everything coming down in the world um, after the war. Um, and then you get this revisiting of it when suddenly she reveals this, you know, the directrice um, reveals this whole other side to herself. And again, there's a whole appeal to the worker is what keeps the House of Dior running. It's not just Christian Dior. He plays his part, but so does everyone else. And mm-hmm. they all in the whole celebration at the end of the reconfiguration is we won't be firing any workers. We need more work. Yes, right, right. In this, in this you know, celebration of a more democratic fashion world so that the Mrs. Harris's of the world can have a bottle of perfume, can have a dress, can have a, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But so she's, you know, kind of collapsed these worlds together, but in a way that creates a more utopian world. And, you know, but I meant to go on with this issue of the dress. The most incredible thing happens with the dress. Not only does it become the 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 the, the romance, the, the romantic partner, mm-hmm. um, it, it attains a kind of life through through the brilliance of the labor and through, you know, photogenie, if you know the concept, one of the <laughs> photogenie that characterizes cinema. Um, is it is it gives animate life to seemingly inanimate objects? That's one of the gifts of the camera. Also, you know, uh, making us conscious of the movement of time through messing with time, the way time seems to pass in films, slow mo, fast mo, all those things. Um, which there's lots of as well in the most emotional moments of the film, especially around the dress, the appearance of the dress. You see a lot of messing with, um, making us aware of of the passage of time. Mm-hmm. Um. You suddenly it gets so it gains so much life, but that by the time Mrs. Harris brings it home, it's people have been in a serious debate over what. But what is the life essentially of this dress going to be? What are the rights of this dress? Yes, yes. If she owns the dress, where can she wear it? Mm-hmm. She's a charwoman. Isn't it just going to sit in a wardrobe? And someone, you know, the Marquise makes an argument that it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and therefore, if she never takes it anywhere, it still has this, this tremendous value. Others are going to, you know, the directrice is going to argue very in fairly insulting terms before they before they wind up reconciling these two that, you know, you're nobody. <laughs> and this dress is built for somebody. So nobody just makes it invisible. And it's meant to be visible. It doesn't the dress doesn't live until it's out in public and having its impact on people. Mm hmm. So that's all going to be very seriously debated, especially when, sorry, spoiler alert, the first dress, which wasn't her first choice of dress, is destroyed in the film. And then she never gets to wear the dress. She foolishly lends it to one of her clients, a young woman who wants to be an actress, blah, blah, blah. And the young woman is not worthy of her. And the dress is burnt and ruined and killed, in other words. Mm-hmm. And so there's, this leads to an interlude of despair. But then the people at Christian Dior read about this, because, again, this is an actress. She was at a very public um, event um, with a lot of rich and famous people. And so it got press coverage that she'd had a you know, destroyed Christian Dior um, dress on at the time. And they hear about it and they send her the dress that she actually wanted in the first place because the rich customer couldn't pay, which happens all the time, they're indicating. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so she gets the new dress, and then this dress is the one she's going to wear out into the world in defiance of any expectation of what her role in life, her worker role in life, um, should seem to dictate. So she wears this incredibly splendid dress called Temptation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that was her first true love of a dress um, to this to this dance. Um, and the film, the film tell, shows you from the beginning, you know, from the first time she sees temptation that she's mm-hmm. going to end up with it again. Yes. Like all of the cues of like melodrama oh, yeah. and framing are there to tell you like temptation's coming back. Oh, yeah. Even- <laughs> There's no way. Because it's, yeah. they even do the daring thing of when it seems like the climactic moment when she's finally modeling the dress, the, 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 the finished dress in Paris. Not, it's not temptation. I forget the name of the, the default dress. Right. It's a beautiful dress, but it does not look that good on her. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of going. <laughs> yep. And and actually, it's written up very thoroughly in the book that that they don't have the complication in the book of the of the the, 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 the default dress. There's hmm. a long description of how initially everyone is shocked because the dress is beautiful. And is meant to be on a, frankly, built to be on a young, beautiful woman. And that's mm. not who she is. And so everyone is very uneasily aware of this gray haired person with wrinkles and, mm-hmm. you know, untoned flesh coming, emerging out of the top of this dress. And then certain ones come around and see a kind of other kind of beauty there. But many people are just appalled at the vision of it. Mm-hmm. So the, the movie doesn't do any of that. It just has you conscious of the fact that that dress doesn't look quite right on her. It's not, yeah. right. it's not the, it's not the dress. <laughs> yes. So it's hugely satisfying to see her arrive at the dress. Yeah. And they're such beautiful dresses. I'm not even a Kristen Dior fan, particularly. Me neither. Me neither. Look, uh, which me neither. The sloping shoulders. Ugh, the but these... Exactly. The whole sloping shoulders thing. There's just something about this. They're, they're, they're just not what I would prefer. Right? They're, they're, yeah. They give rise to some of the worst dresses of the 50s, frankly. They do. <laughs> they do. But there's just such beautiful, thoughtful work being done on these clothes that that in the model, there's the sequence where she she gets to sit in and watch the the fa- essentially the fashion show that at first they didn't want her to be able to watch, and mm-hmm. it's this montage that's supposed to make it all very beautiful. And it is. It's oddly gasp worthy. Oh yeah, they, they do such a graceful enough job. You know this this isn't like Rosalini, who if you've ever seen Voyage in Italy, does a scene where Ingrid Bergman's character has a transformative experience at an art museum looking at ancient um, Roman art because it seems to live. And the camera work is genius. It, it was stolen wholesale for the Joe, the Joe Wright version starring Kira Knightley of um, uh, Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> it's supposed to be, she's looking at the house owned by Darcy and the statuary in it. And they, he just does a shot for shot remake of this brilliant, incredibly moving montage that's going to take a woman whose marriage is failing. This is in Voyage in Italy, Ingrid Bergman. Because she and her husband have both just become frozen um, and estranged, and it's going to start the thawing process. It, it, that's how moving this art is, and the, it's a brilliant, brilliant sequence. Obviously, Anthony Fabian is not Roberto Rossellini, but but <laughs> that's where he's—that's what he's aiming at. He's mm-hmm. aiming at oh, it's supposed to be just oh, you can so that you can see how thoroughly transformative an experience it is to see these artwork clothes which they are oh yeah they're incredible oh if you ever go to a museum show where it's like the great couture figures are are, then they're letting you look at the actual you just cannot believe (laughs) the sculptural beauty it's insane it's insane you the fabrics you've never 
touched in your life. You can't touch, but you you just staring at details that are just, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really live in clothes. At least none of us can afford it. I assume it would be right. I, it almost <laughs> makes me want to pull a Mrs. Harris and just, it would just be so great once in my life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, so at any rate, they, these are artworks, um, made by genius people, um, who are sculpting these experiences, um, these emotional, um, creations that you can't look at unmoved if you care anything about I don't know, clothes, art, <laughs> craft, anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's designed to be that that sequence so we can be with her in her, what's supposed to be, and I love this part of it, it's both supposed to be vastly transformative, but it can't like remove her from her life. Mm-mm. She's going to go back and be a charwoman. Yeah, there's this conversation in the film between her, quote, invisibility. Yes. Uh, she's invisible as an older woman, and she yeah. also has no status. And as the Isabelle Huppert character reminds her, she's nobody. nobody. So so what right does she have to wear the dress, which, of mm-hmm. course, is made to be visible, but in a way, it also makes her visible on mm-hmm. occasion when mm-hmm. she desires. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of an interesting rhyme with the women I was talking about and the concept of exile. Being invisible is like being, you know, exiled. You're already exiled immediately by default when you're an older woman. Mm-hmm. You're, you're exiled from the economy of desire, from um, certainly from being any kind of like a citizen. I mean, people aren't really like looking to you as a group that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And so for the so the dress is kind of a like a interesting I don't know uh, thing that you can put on um, <laughs> mm-hmm. to like remind the world that like you are here <laughs> you know so, yes and 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 to make people see you afresh so it is there is an important moment when she does go home and she does dance with Archie the bookie who was who liked her they were he was kind of a pal of her and Vi's but the minute he wanted anything romantic he turned immediately to the younger woman on the dance floor and walked away from them and that's why yeah. she says we're we're just invisible um yeah he says something like you're beautiful you're beautiful but then you always were mm-hmm. you, you always were kind of inside and out beautiful he sort of can retroactively see her <laughs> um in a way oh and this makes me rethink your whole being from before dress and now after dress mm-hmm. so Yes, she goes back to, and she will be the charwoman. You don't doubt that. But she will not just be the charwoman. So she will, in fact, escape from at least the worst of of Sartre's bad faith, um, um, inauthentic lives that are dead yeah. ends. So, and, you know, he does argue there's no such thing as the fully authentic life. This is a struggle that never ends. Mm-hmm. Um, that you try to <laughs> to escape from that kind of box. But it sets you off on such a hopeful, even though she goes home, which is not particularly radical, at least she goes home having had a radical experience. Yeah, totally. And her home, I would say, like, it's not the same as going back to, like, raising a family, which is where, like, women's films usually put them. Um, You know, she's got, like, a community. Um, and that's not, you know, it's not the exact same thing as like, go home and be a good wife and mother or grandmother that's happening to her. And she'll value herself differently now. And me, and I, you know, I love that because like, we can't all, it it would be, it would definitely like stretch credulity if she, if she did get to, you know, live, um, 
super differently than she started out with because she doesn't have the means for that. But but it is a way of, again, like, I, I think the thing that all of these films have in common is like, you can't completely overhaul the world, but you mm. can find like optimism and joy mm. <laughs> um, in thinking differently about how to live in it. Yes. And you can think of yourself as someone who now moves in the world. So it's it's very telling that Paul Gallico is a very popular book. He then writes sequels. One is uh. Mrs. Harris Goes to New York. Mrs. Ah. Harris goes to Moscow. Oh yeah, Mrs. Harris. Okay. Yeah. So Mrs. Harris. So the, now the idea of Mrs. Harris, footloose and fancy free, is still possible, even if it takes her three years every time. Yeah. She is now in the mode of I am a I am a uh, an actor, and and that's another important sort thing. All of this has to turn into action. All of it. All of it. All of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. anything that's just you sitting there reflecting on yourself and <laughs> the, your existence and the universe that's a waste if it doesn't if it isn't transformed into action so the idea that now she will be someone on the move even within her circumscribed you know you know her, her, the, the limits of what she can afford is an exciting one she just now that idea of herself is going to carry her through and so that's absolutely. the most thrilling thing it can be as simple as or at least it's posited in this wonderful kind of admittedly somewhat fantastical film that it could be as simple as a one trip that would be transformative and make exactly. you yourself differently. And I can hear the counter arguments. That's not the same thing as like accepting your lot in life and like being content with a shitty salary. Remember, Mrs. Harris leads a strike. (laughs) (laughs) And a completely different idea of labor and class than she had before she went to Paris. Exactly. Garbage strike. <laughs> but you know, smells like a worker. You, you bet. And I love the idea that you don't have to be one does not need to become rich to have beautiful things or mm-hmm. to, you know, or to live a rich life. Like I would feel betrayed if she ended up with the marquee, you know? Oh, then, exactly. I was afraid. My God, I was afraid. Yes. <laughs> so it was wonderful when it was like, no. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, so you, you know, and it's, I, I, you, this is what like complicates the idea that beautiful things and a love for beautiful things is the same thing as like wanton consumerism. Mm-hmm. It's not. And she can, she loves many things about her, you know, in some ways, humble existence. And she also loves this beautiful dress. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And those things can coexist. Like consumerism is about having, um, but her relationship to the dress is about like appreciating and marveling and, Mm -hmm. you know, and those are different things. So like, don't get it twisted. And I, you know, I love this for being pro worker and not this like puritanical, Stalinist <laughs> uh, thing that that means you have to like um, not like fine things <laughs> or, yeah. or beautiful things, you know. Um, so yeah, how well, again, it's amazing how 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 much it's totally forgotten, and then that it's it is kind of a laugh line to say nothing's too good for the working class, but yeah, it's worth repeating seriously. Nothing's too good for the working class. You bet. <laughs> the, the idea isn't that no one has fine things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The idea is that everyone might. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so, yes, the <laughs> radicality of taking high art and, you know, the, a kind of worker sensibility in, in, the, in the house of Dior, which yeah. screams all up like about, you know, out, out of control consumer fantasy. 
and bringing them all together. That was just so unexpected. I, it was delightful just to be constantly shocked and surprised over and over in this film. Highly yeah. recommend. Yeah, for sure. Go yeah. go see Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. Um, mm-hmm. Old broads are leading the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just like our thesis for the film for a film suck. Old broads. Old broads, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not going to get a better closing line than that one. Thank no. you, Doris. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah. Um, the end of our episode again, entitled Old Broads Hit the Road. Thank you, dear listeners. And of course, triple thanks for our subscribers who keep us in our AAA memberships. We need those. <laughs> Hit the road. If you're not a subscriber yet, but you like what you hear, please consider signing up with Patreon for all the Film Suck content instead of just the half that's publicly available. You can follow news of the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please join us in two weeks for more radical Film Suck conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Until then, thanks again for listening. Bye. Bye.